slim on mothers this morning, um, including my wife. She's not here because Abby woke up with a with something, some sort of virus, I guess. I don't know. Seems like it's going around these days. But uh, nonetheless, happy Mother's Day. And uh, we'll be in Psalm 121 this morning. And I do... Uh, I did pick Psalm 121 in light of Mother's Day. And no, it's not because we're driven by the culture per se. And uh, we need to jump whenever they say to. But the reality is that um, mothers should be highlighted. Um, Mothers in Christ especially um, highlighted and um, given some help from the scriptures. And so we're going to look at Psalm 121. And Psalm 121 doesn't necessarily pinpoint mothers, per se, but Psalm 121 is for mothers, as well as all of us on this journey of following the Lord to the celestial city. And so we'll read it together, uh, and then go some, through some preliminary thoughts I have about it, and then unpack it. Uh, it's a wonderful, wonderful psalm. So Psalm 121. The superscription says, A Song of Ascents. I will lift up my eyes to the mountains. From where shall my help come? My help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to slip, and he who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun will not smite you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will protect you from all evil. He will keep your soul. The Lord will guard your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the Psalms. We thank you for these precious scriptures that come to us to instruct us, to, to teach us, to train us in righteousness, to remind us of who you are, and to, mi- to remind us that you keep us. And so, Father, I pray this morning that you would just do that for us. Your Holy Spirit is given to us as the teacher, as the helper, and we pray that he would help us to understand this word, this precious word to us. And Lord, through these words, mysteriously but truly, Lord, please enlighten us um, open our minds to behold wonderful things in it and satisfy our hearts as we see you as our keeper uh, father we uh, we pray for mothers in particular this morning um, mothers in christ that are seeking to honor you with their role that you personally have given them we we ask you lord for fresh encouragement and strength in this um in this in- incredible privilege and consequential endeavor of motherhood And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Psalm 121. Psalm 121 comes to us in the midst of a section in the Psalter from 120 to 134 called the Psalm of Ascents. I think Ben probably has talked about this several different times over the years as Ben has gone through the Psalms in Sunday school and maybe even speaking up here before. I spoke on this Psalm about nine years ago. I look back and... uh, Normally I'd be like, oh, okay, I spoke it on nine years ago. I don't want to do that again. Um, something new, right? But the reality is, um, it's God's word. And um, it's a wonderful psalm to help those on the journey to following, in their following of the Lord. 
and yeah, I don't like the word journey, but in the sense in which you'll, you'll see in a second, that's kind of what it is. Um, and uh, so anyway, but um, Psalm 121, glorious psalm given to us in this section called the Song of Ascents, or the Psalm of Ascents, or, or a Psalm of Degrees, it was the old translation, a Psalm of Degrees, meaning there's this, there's this, um, this stepping up. Some people think it's a stepping up in terms of the tone or the, the key um, that you sing it in. John Calvin believed that. Um, but others tend to think it has something to do with either the saints in Old Testament time period or the people of God in the Old Testament period traveling to Jerusalem um, to, to gather at one of the feast days or the festivals. Or it could be the going up the 15 steps from the outer court into the into the into the the uh, some other platform at the temple. I can't remember what it was called, but there were 15 steps, and it says that the priests would sing these 15 psalms on their way up those steps. And that's mentioned back in the mission, I believe. But regardless, what we have here is, is, is we have a psalm that comes to us with great promises. You probably couldn't help but hear over and over, the Lord is, the Lord is, the Lord will, the Lord will, He will, He will. It comes to us with these promises. And it comes to us with promises um, to encourage us along the way. And some of my preliminary thoughts here um, I want to just kind of state that, that this is a psalm of assurance given to his people. Um, and I, I just want to highlight that at the outset, that this is a psalm of assurance. Um, and the reason is because we, we might think that we need more exhortation to evangelism. We, we may think that we might need more admonition to turn from sin and wage war. We may think we may need more exhortations to good works or perhaps more encouragement to just seek the Lord in prayer and fasting. Um, th- these are all vital exhortations. Uh, these are all vital angles to, to come to the Christian and say, these are the things you need to be focusing on, excel. Um, they're all vital. But, but the Lord also knows, doesn't he, that we need assurance. The Lord knows that we need assurance. We need a reminder of his preserving power in our lives. We, we desperately need that. As much as we need goading on, we also need to recognize that he's the one who's keeping us going. That's, that's the reality. We have to understand that at the end of the day, it's the Lord ultimately that upholds us. You know, we, have to, we have to recognize that um, for various reasons, but just for our, for our comfort and for our reassurance that we are not alone in this in this journey. And so the Lord gives us this. In, this. in this psalm, he really doesn't ask us to do anything. There's not one action item commanded that, that I can tell. Um, it's just a reminder of who God is for you. It's just a reminder of the assurances that we have because the Lord is our keeper. And so that's, that's just a wonderful thing just to highlight. Nothing really asked of us in this. There is an implicit there is an implicit um, action that I'll talk about, and that is of lifting up your eyes. That is something that you have to do. But other than that, you just have over and over stated who the Lord is, what he does, who the Lord is, what he does, and it's all with reference to keeping you and preserving you for himself from this time forth and forever is how the psalm ends. So, it's a psalm of assurance. It's also a, a psalm where it's clear that help and preservation are in view. How many times do you see that word keeper? Over and over and over you see it. Verse four, 
He who keeps Israel will neither slumber or sleep. Verse 5, the Lord is your keeper. Verse 7, the Lord will protect you from all evil. That's quite a statement. The Lord will guard or keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forever. It's a psalm that, that, that he wants us to feel the, the genuine help and the, this notion that nothing ultimately will overtake us in the end. So it's about helping and preservation. And I thought about this psalm in particular because I remembered all the different places in there talked about helping us, the Lord helping us. And in the Song of Ascents, you have this idea of the Lord being our helper along the way. And it couldn't, I couldn't help but think about women. I couldn't help but think about God creating the first woman, right? What was her role in particular? Well, she used to be a helper suitable for her husband. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means that she shares the load and helps him sort of along in his, his endeavor to subdue the earth and, and, and cultivate it and keep it and basically civilize this world for God's glory. And that she is given to the man to make his life, to make, it, to make his job easier and to, to, make it more, to make it doable by God's grace. She is the helper. She is there with reference to him and his efforts to obey the Lord in being fruitful and multiplying and subduing the earth. And so it made me think about this whole reality. And, and the term for, for women in Genesis, or for a woman there in Genesis 2 is etzer. It's the Hebrew word etzer. It means helper, helper corresponding. Um, but it's that idea of helping. And what's really amazing is that this is also a term the Lord takes on himself. Right? Where does my help come from? The Lord is the one who helps. My help comes from the Lord. And so what you find out is that the Lord, too, is a helper. Now, obviously, this has nothing to do with female gender or anything like that. But, but it's also amazing, isn't it, that the God who made the heavens and the earth is also someone who comes to assist you. That's, that kind of blows your mind. There is no other God quite like that. No other proposed God quite like that. And so... Um, so I thought that, well, that's interesting, you know, that, that women are called helper suitable. God here is said to be the one who helps us. This fits nicely with Mother's Day. And uh, so that's why, that's, why I'm, 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 uh, I, that's why I think the Lord brought me to this passage. In other words, if I were to put a title on this passage, I would, I would say, you know, helpers, you have help. Um, and the Lord is that help. So as we, as we think about Mother's Day, I do want to encourage all of you mothers who are so, biologically, or, or, and even spiritually. Remember, Paul says you, um, you regard the older women as mothers. Jesus says that you gain mothers, which is interesting. And he's not just talking about biological mothers. He's talking about mothers after the Spirit, so to speak. Um, but motherhood is, is a consequential role. Um, a mother's influence of her children impacts their habits, their values, their knowledge, their conscience, their socialization, their knowledge of God. A mother's presence brings comfort and guidance and compassion in a way that dads typically cannot express. Motherhood is vital, and yet it's utterly exhausting. It can be nerve-wracking. How many times Paige says, just my nerves are, they just feel so exposed at the end of the day, they just she can't take much more. That happens. Um, the responsibilities of caring for the welfare of little image bearers so that they grow up as civil, trustworthy members of society and hopefully disciples of the Lord Jesus can be overwhelming. 
And knowing that training a child in the way of the Lord impacts their future prospects of following the Lord is, is sobering indeed, isn't it? Um, not, that, not that even the most ardent efforts to train a child guarantees the new birth. It does not. This remains God's sovereign freedom um, to do so. Yet at the same time, the Proverbs wouldn't speak of present training, training the children as their children. It wouldn't talk about that, paying off in the future obedience to the Lord if it were not true at some level. So it's a tremendous privilege and responsibility. And perhaps moms more than most feel their need for the Lord's help um, most frequently and acutely. So anyway, so if you're a mom here today, you probably find yourself thinking you're failing. I think that's common. How many of you moms think you're just knocking it out of the park? Probably not. Um, again, not that you should be wallowing in, 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 in things that you, you feel like you could have done better, but still, most, most moms who want to do it well frequently think that they're failing or it's too much to handle, etc. Well, if that's you, this psalm should come as a welcome comfort and support. The Lord of heaven and earth is your personal etzer. He is your personal helper. And this is the truth. We, we preach the word of God because it's the truth. And that's the truth. The truth is that the Lord, your God, is your helper. And you have to believe that and live in light of it. And as you do, you know, you'd be able to write a psalm like this. Because one thing you realize is when the psalmist writes, the psalmist writes out of this personal experience of knowing the help of the Lord. Matter of fact, if you look at verse 3, he speaks in the second person. He will not allow your foot to slip. He's no longer talking about himself. He's talking to you. He will not let your foot slip. This is the psalmist's personal experience that he himself has taken in and experienced that he wants to remind you. And he can tell you that with full confidence if you're the Lord's. That he will not allow your foot to slip. He who keeps you will not slumber. So it's, it's awesome. But of course, this psalm is not just for weary mothers. The psalm is for those seeking the Lord on the road that is narrow and hard, where the sun may smite you in the day and the moon by night. And as we, as we, as we think about this psalm in its context historically, and under, the, under an old covenant, under an old administration, so to speak, as we filter this psalm through the realities that Christ has brought into history through the new covenant, we recognize that the nature of, this, that of the saints' lived experience has changed from the old covenant to the new. And certainly not in every way, but in crucial ways. The psalm, for instance, was probably written by a traveler on their way to Jerusalem for some festival or feast, like I mentioned. And on this journey, the, the rough Middle Eastern desert region would be, would be there, would be that which they would travel through, It'd be, have many dangers. There's, of course, the scorching sun, not a lot of places for shade. There's the bewitching moon at night, the danger from wild beasts, marauders, there's the danger of deviating off the path, just losing or just losing heart for the journey. This psalm would remind the Old Testament saint that God is for them in this journey and guide them as he did Old Testament Israel through the wilderness. Each, each person probably reflects on that. 
that, that preservation God had with Israel. But as we think of the fact that now history's changed and Jesus has now made the old covenant obsolete and therefore the geographical center of the worship of God is obsolete, no longer physical Jerusalem, we must realize the nature of our journey is no longer geographical in nature, it is spiritual. It's spiritual in nature. Does it make it any less real? As a matter of fact, there's a sense in which it's almost more real because we live in the time of fulfillment where Jesus brings to pass these spiritual realities in our lives. We are still longing for and traveling to Jerusalem, but it's a heavenly one, right? We're citizens there right now, as these saints were of Jerusalem. That's why they were allowed to go there and partake of the festival, and we too are citizens of the heavenly Jerusalem, and yet we are traveling. And as we are traveling there, we don't travel by an arduous path through the desert, but by faith in Jesus on a narrow road of loving him, keeping his commands, in community with the body of Christ. And so this psalm is for those who do not want to deviate from the path of following Jesus, staying faithful to him, and those who know they need him to keep them walking straight in faith and hope and love and holiness. And it's for those who need reminding that ultimately they don't preserve themselves. The sun's heat in our lives is not necessarily the physical heat, but it has more to do with the trials of life and knowing that the Lord is the one who keeps us and has purpose in these trials. He's our protector. And for all the expectations and commands to obey the Lord and abide in Christ, this psalm tells us our ultimate hope is that God will preserve us to the end. So let's just kind of look through it and draw some of the of encouragement from it. So verse 1, I will lift my eyes to the mountains. Lift my eyes to the mountains. From where shall my help come? You know, for a while, whenever I would read this psalm, I would be a little confused here. Some people think this is a question. Um, the whole thing is a question. Should I lift my eyes to the mountains? Is sort of the question some commentators say. I don't see that here. But for a while I didn't know that if he's saying, I will lift my eyes to the mountains, from where does my help come from? In other words, as he sees the mountains, he automatically feels this need for help because the mountains look pretty intimidating. You know, he's got to travel through them or to them in some sense to get to his desired destination. And so it's a, it's a plea for help that comes from seeing the arduous nature of climbing mountains to, to get to the Lord. But as I've thought about it, I don't think that's what's going on. I think that this is a determination to focus on the true source of the saint's help. And the reason I say that is because he doesn't say, I lift up my eyes to the mountains, from where shall my help come from? He says, I will lift up my eyes to the mountains. From where shall my help come? It's a statement of determination. I'm going to lift my eyes up. From where shall my help come? I think that's what's, I think that's what's happening here. The lifting of one's eyes, often in the Psalms, is an expression of faith to look away from oneself and circumstances to the Lord. Oftentimes that's what it is. Listen to Psalm 123, a couple over. Again, Psalm of, Psalm of Ascents. 
To you I lift up my eyes. O you who are enthroned in the heavens, behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maid to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God until he is gracious to us. Be gracious to us, O Lord, be gracious to us, for we are greatly filled with contempt. Our soul is greatly filled with the scoffing of those who are at ease and with the contempt of the proud. Along the journey of the Christian, you have the proud who fill the soul of the Christian with contempt and with trial and with struggle. And the Christian looks at these people creating and causing all this contempt and they say their life just seems so easy. They're at ease, he says. So what's his response? His response is to lift their eyes to the Lord, the eyes of faith. The psalmist in faith takes his or her eyes and and places and, and takes their attention off of their enemies to the Lord who's enthroned in heaven. These eyes that are lifted aren't necessarily physical eyes here in Psalm 123, although perhaps there was that action. But these are the eyes of faith that have seen the Lord in His greatness and His power, but also His willingness to help and respond and say, I'm going to be gracious to you and answer and, and, and help. Brethren, the Lord has so ordained our faith to need to look at the Lord in order to summon and receive his help. He has so ordained that our faith be of such a nature that as we look at him through faith, we receive help. We lift our eyes to him. The Psalms, the the Psalms like this one, are meant to teach us, like, like all the Old Testament, but is, is to teach us. But this, these psalms are meant to teach us and instruct us as we face opposition and persecution from enemies. We must learn to look at the Lord in help. Think of Psalm 37, talking about those, again, the wicked that increase in the land. It says, in the middle of it all, those who look to the Lord are radiant. Those who look to the Lord are radiant. Now again, that that should jog your mind a little bit on thinking, well, wait a minute, there was somebody else who was in the presence of the Lord and their face shone, right? Think about Moses. And here the psalmist picks up on that too. He says, those who look to the Lord, their faces are radiant. They glow. Just like in the new covenant that now we, with unveiled face, behold as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. There's something about looking at the Lord that, that, that makes you radiant, that makes you glow, So the question is, do you do that? Do you lift your eyes to the Lord? I mean, how many of you guys experience hardship on the journey? (laughs) How many of you guys experience many difficulties? How many many of you actually, day by day, experience the challenge of being faithful to the Lord in this moment or that moment? (laughs) And is your impulse to shake yourself away from looking at all the mess and the chaos and the potential trouble and look up with the eyes of your faith and say to you, Lord, I'm looking. I'm looking to you as a servant to his master. Will you help me? And you keep your eyes there. 
That is a real thing. That is not just nice poetic language in the Psalms. That is the Christian life. The Christian life is looking away from you to your source of help. Obviously, one can't help but think of Jesus' lesson to Peter on the water and and, and to all the disciples at that moment and all disciples by extension that as we have our eyes on Jesus, we can ride on top the stormy waves. The world can't say they can do this. And if they do, they pat themselves on the back and they become amazing, wonderful people and give seminars, right? That's not what we do. What we do is we look to Jesus and we walk on water. Oh, Chris, that's, you know, that's, that was for Peter. He was proving a point that he's God. I don't think so. Yeah, sure, there was that. But I think there's this also this reality that he's teaching us a lesson that is clearly, that is pervasive in the Old and the New Testaments. And what is that? Fix your eyes on me. And I will give you peace through the storm. I will help you to traverse the storm in a way that still honors me. Do you believe that? Do you believe that you can go through all manner of trial, hardship, and pain in your life in a way that pleases the Lord still? And and, and in such a way that that you'll come through it having, having experienced the upholding of the Lord so that you personally can say, the Lord is my helper. He won't allow your foot to slip. I know he won't. Can you do that? Can you say that? You should be able to. We should all be able to. And not because we should all be great, wonderful heroes in the faith, but because we have a God who's enthroned uh, above the cherubim who wants to help you. This is why. Over and over we see, fix your eyes, fix your eyes, look, look, look at the Lord. The writer of Hebrews calls us to consider Jesus in chapter 3, the high priest and apostle of our faith. Chapter 12, consider Jesus who endured such hostility against himself so that we would not lose heart and grow weary. And he flat out says in Hebrews 12, fix your eyes on Jesus who for the joy set before him endured a cross. All all of these texts, I'm trying to tell you, all of these texts and many others cause us, they tell us, look away from you. Look away to Christ. It's not about believing in your belief Believing in your faith, having faith in your faith. It's having faith in Jesus, faith in the Lord, looking to the Lord. That's what it is. He's the one that we're trusting. He's the anchor of our souls. Not your feeling of how much you believe Him, but who He is, is what it is. Look to Him. God has so ordained that the eyes of our faith, when we we exercise them, we look to Christ we are renewed and strengthened. So in this psalm, the writer declares that this is what they will do as they face this journey to the Lord's dwelling. They will lift up their eyes. So brethren, you've got accountability groups. You've got brethren in those accountability groups, sisters in those accountability groups, and you get together in those accountability groups. I have a sneaking suspicion that 50% of the time that you're in the accountability groups, you're talking about your struggles. Probably. And so what should the brethren be telling you? Lift up your eyes. Lift them up. Come on, lift them up. Lift them up to a God who's on a throne, to the eternal king. Lift them up to there. And you continue to get, get, the, get them up. 
Lift up your eyes to the Lord. Don't hang your head. Don't have a pity party. Lift up your eyes. And Spurgeon said this one time. He was preaching on, um, look to me all the ends of the earth and you will be saved. Isaiah, can't remember. That's what the Lord used to save him. And he reflected on it and he's just like, man, anybody can look. Right? Anybody can look. Anybody can do that. Anybody can take their eyes and look. It's easy. You just look. How hard is it to look? It's not very hard. It's simple, really. But just look. And you have the scriptures that you can open up and read the one that Kepha read. You can, le- you can read the Revelation. And you can look. But do you look? I mean, seriously, do, do you really look? Do you take a look and say, oh, oh, wow, yeah. All the, all the turmoil that goes on in our world in Revelation says it's all coming from the throne. Oh, that means everything's under control. Do you look? Or do you fret as if God has somehow left the building? Do you look? The psalmist here says, I'm going to lift my eyes. I've got a prospect, an arduous journey. I'm going to lift my eyes. And he says, I'm going to lift my eyes to the mountains. And again, I think the mountains were a way of drawing his eyes upward. As the eyes sort of, as you look to the mountains, perhaps you're you're reminded of the bigness of this world and maybe a further realization of the bigness of the God who made this world and the mountains in it. Something like this. Especially since Jerusalem sat at the top of the hill in Israel, in, in southern Israel. So, so this psalmist lifts his eyes up to the mountains and he's reminded of the Lord's dwelling and that's where he sets his faith. Something like that. But have you ever done that? Have you ever, you're just sort of cluttered with all these things. I, I do this sometimes when I'm driving, you know, because I have to, I'm portable a lot at work, I'm mobile. And you just stop and you just kind of like look up out of the sky and it just draws you up and out of the realities of all the crazy. And just, you just look up. And that prompts me sometimes to pray. Maybe that's what's happening here. But I recommend that. Look up to the sky frequently. You know? Seriously, look up. You know, the Lord says that, he, that His glory is declared in the clouds. Look up. Because you know what happens when you look at a, at a massive display of just these incredible shapes and clouds and, and um, jet streams and just sunsets and all these, you know what it does? It just reminds you like, wow, my, my God really isn't little. He's, he's not little. He's not foolish. So look up. And he says, from where shall my help come? One of the definitions of help in the English, it means to come to the aid of someone. Another one is to assist them to bring succor. But I like this one, to make an arduous task doable or to make it easier. (laughs) I like that, it's really simple. To make an arduous task doable. I, I, I like that. The psalmist is asking 
the question, where do I get this assistance I need to make the task of following the Lord on this doable? What, where do I, where can I find my help to ultimately find him? And now the question obviously is a rhetorical question. He knows where he's going to find it, but he asks himself that. He asks himself that. He's engaging with himself. He's sort of preaching to himself, from where shall my help come? Now the world answers this in many different ways. As the world faces hardship and difficulty, what do they seek help from? Well, social media. Perhaps it's food. Mindless entertainment, movies, exercise, alcohol, drugs, sex, workaholism, psychology, Oprah, religious activity like prayer beads, burning incense, on and on and on and on and on and on. But not the Lord. Not the Lord, not the Lord himself. It just takes faith. It takes faith to make the Lord your help. This is what the world does do. The world goes to these things. But those who know the Lord, as we ask ourselves these questions, where our help comes from, our answer must be the Lord. And honestly answering this question shows where your faith lies. Answering this honestly shows you where your faith lies. When you are squeezed, where do you go? Retaliation, bitterness, gossip, slander, um, fretting? Or do you lift your eyes? What are you known for? Are you known for that? Are you known for the one as the one who lifts their eyes to the Lord? Are you known as the one who never does? And I say that just by way of just having an honest, how do you answer this question? Where does your help come from? And, and, and again, not to just push you off and say, well, you're without hope. No, there's plenty of hope in Christ. He wants to be your help. He wants you to answer rightly in these things. So if one is to find themselves standing before God one day, holy and without blame, and will hear, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into that new Jerusalem, they must answer, the Lord is my help. Right, or you won't make it. And he wants you to make it. Now there's some Old Testament examples of help, and we don't have time to go through them all, but I just want to read a few for you, and just Listen. At the beginning of the, of the plans for God redeeming his people from Egypt, we have Exodus 2.23 through 25. We have the groaning of the Israelites. There's a statement here that the Lord hears their groaning under the oppression and slavery under Pharaoh. And it says that now it came about in the course of those many days that the king of Egypt died. And the sons of Israel sighed because of the bondage. And they cried out and their cry for help because of their bondage, rose up to God. So God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God saw the sons of Israel, and God took notice of them. God remembered, and God took notice of them. And then what do you have? You have chapter 3 of Exodus, 
God responds by setting up Moses as their deliverer. So the help the Lord provides and, and, and the, the help that delivers his people from bondage and oppression come from this cry that the people had for help. So here we have the help is deliverance from bondage, deliverance from real tyrannical oppression. Deuteronomy 33, 26 to 29. There is none like the God of Jeshurun who rides to the heavens, or rides through the heavens to your help. Think of that. There's none like the God of Jeshurun who rides through the heavens to your help and through the skies in his majesty. The eternal God is a dwelling place and under are the everlasting arms. And he drove out the enemy from before you and said, destroy. So Israel dwells in security. The fountain of Jacob secluded in a land of grain and new wine. His heavens also drop down dew. Blessed are you, O Israel. Who is like you, a people saved by the Lord? Who is the shield of your help and the sword of your majesty? So your enemies will cringe before you and you will tread upon their high places. See this this idea of enemies being against us and the Lord being our help. What are our our enemies? We have enemies within, right? We still have remaining sin. We have an enemy without, which is Satan himself. Right? And we have a wicked world that hates God that oftentimes will prove to be our enemies. And so in all of these spheres, whether it's with ourselves or with others, or just a spiritual attack or whatever, or a mixture of them. Sometimes there it is. Sometimes it's just a mixture of all three. Guess who's going to help you? Guess who's going to ride through the sky and help you? Guess who's going to do that? The same God who delivered Egypt or delivered Israel from Egypt. That same God. He will do that. Do you know that? Do you believe that? We should. We we, we must. Nehemiah 6, after the completion of the wall around Jerusalem, it says, says, the wall was completed on the 25th of the month of Elul in 52 days. When all our enemies heard of it and all the nations surrounding us saw it, they lost their confidence. For they recognized that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. What a wonderful verse that is. These people saw, oh, they they have a God who helps. Reminds me of submit yourself to the Lord and Satan will flee from you. It's kind of like Satan's like, oh, he's submitted to the Lord. I ain't messing with him. I mean, there's a sense in which that's true, isn't it? Submit yourself to the Lord, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. That's what it says. Psalm 5. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Hear the sound of my cry for help. My King and my God, for to you I pray in the morning, O Lord, you will hear my voice. In the morning I will order my prayer to you and eagerly watch. It's about praying, crying out for help. For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. You destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. O Lord, make, lead me in your righteousness because of my foes. Make your way straight before me. So here in the midst of those who do wickedness, the saint longs to walk in a straight path before the Lord faithfully. And so the cry for help goes up to the, to the Lord to seek the strength that he needs. 
And I just thought, this is more and more of our situation in our country. The more and more, that, that we, the, the, more we, the more we sort of pay attention to the media, what we find, and, and just living in the world, going downtown, whatever it is, you see wickedness surround us. Antagonism to Christians is on an all-time high. The walls, in some sense, seem to be closing in. Not nearly as many as others in this world, but, but the antagonism toward the believer, believers is growing. And we want our way to stay straight. So what do we do? We go to the Lord. So simple. We, we cry to him for help. So the answer to the question clearly is, verse 2, my help comes from the Lord. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. This is the personal help from the Lord himself. Now the Lord can send an angel. Sometimes he, he might do that. But this passage is specific. This is about the personal help from a personal God. And I say personal because he uses the divine name. The Lord, Yahweh. The name given to Moses at the burning bush when God was revealing who he, who he is. He says, I am. And the transliteration for that is the Lord that the English is, has, puts forward. My help comes from Yahweh. Now God is sort of what he is. The Lord is who he is. Yahweh, that's his name. And your help comes from the God who was at the burning bush. Your help comes from Jehovah. Personal God who reveals his name to us. We know who he is. And this name means what? I am. It means that I am the self-existent one. The self-sufficient one. This is the glory of our helper. Our helper is the fountain of living waters. The source of all life. I always think about this with Jesus healing the crowds. You know, day in, day out. You're like, Jesus, when are you going to run out of steam? When are you going to run out of juice? When are you going to stop being able to heal? And he never does. He never, ever does. Always healing, always delivering. How does he do this? Well, he does it because he's Jehovah. He does it because he's Jehovah, ultimately. He does it in a, in a way and in a degree that not just average men can do. Even men of faith, even men who have faith, who have gifts of healings. You still can't compare to Jesus. Jesus is pouring out himself all day, every day, for years. And his power never runs out. Never runs out. And why? Because he's Jehovah. He's Yahweh. Yahweh is the very one from whom our help comes. There is no situation, none, no situation in which his help will not be sufficient. Do you believe that? That's quite a statement. Some of you have gone through a lot of hard things and are going through a lot of hard things. Do you, do you believe that there is no situation in which his help will not be sufficient? He's Yahweh. And to put a fine point on it, he tells us he's the one who made heaven and earth. 
again, one of the things that would be good for you to do if your faith feels little or non-existent is to pull up Hubble telescope pictures, right? Pull them up, start looking at them. Pull up, pull up pictures of the Annapurna circuit. Pull up pictures in Nepal. Pull up pictures of the highest peaks. Pull up pictures of the grand wilderness of Siberia. Pull up all these pictures. Remember who and how big your God is. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. The heavens and the earth, God makes the way he does, makes the universe as big as he does so that you recognize, so that your faith will be bigger. He wants your faith to be bigger. Your faith is little oftentimes. My faith is little oftentimes. But he wants it to be bigger. He wants you to remember, oh, wow, yeah. You've made all things well by your power. Our God doesn't just make the earth. He he doesn't just make planets. He doesn't just make solar systems. He doesn't just make galaxies. He makes space. What? Space. Space is bigger than galaxies, and galaxies have hundreds of billions of stars. We need to lift our eyes, brethren. We need to lift our eyes. You mothers, God gave you these kids. God gave you these kids, and God can give you help. You gotta lift up your eyes. Get good at lifting up your eyes to the Lord. He made heaven and earth. What does this tell you about God's ability? It tells you he's fully able, fully wise, fully capable. And this psalm reminds us he's fully willing to help. Goes on to say, with some wonderful promises now, we have a section of promises, he will not allow your foot to slip. He will not allow your foot to slip. Psalmist says, I know you're on a journey, and I know the sun is hot, and I know you need shade, and I know the ground is treacherous that you're walking on, but he's not going to allow your foot to slip. And this is a promise. He will not allow it. And on a physical sense, when you're backpacking, for instance, as Shep and I did last weekend, good shoes are a must, or good sandals, as the case may be with Shep. It's weird, but that's what he does. I'm just kidding. It works for him. I'm a little envious sometimes. Because, you know, your feet can breathe when you're in sandals, and shoes they can't, and it's not as convenient. But anyway, I can't make sandals work. But I, I really looked hard for some really good shoes. And I didn't realize... You know, you, you, you don't realize until you're on the trail how vital good shoes are. You just don't really. I mean, you think like, okay, I'm going to do my research and try to find some good shoes. Then when you're out there, you're like, okay, these really are horrible. You know, or, man, I made a great choice. I bought some new shoes, and they did okay, but my feet were kind of slipping around in the shoe a little bit. And what I thought was interesting, I was trying to, I was thinking about this as I was walking and sweating and praying. Um, thinking about, man, when you can't get traction with your shoes and you slip a little and you're going up a hill, it just feels like, like man, that, that was wasted energy. You know, like my, my, I don't, I'm not taking positive steps. I'm not getting, you know, the most output. 
here with every step that I take and my foot slips and when you slip you just you lose more energy and you're not going forward as as you would like slipping's a big deal and especially when you're really wanting to get to that destination and you have very little energy to get there you need to make positive sure steps and one bad slip may mean you're taken out of your journey and you won't make it to your destination right and again in this time period, as people are making their trips, all kinds of dangers, all kinds of issues, your feet are vital. You walk everywhere, for the most part. And so this is why he captures that reality, that the Lord will not make your foot to slip. He wouldn't maybe think it's a big deal, but again, when, you, when, when your feet are everything, it, it is a big deal. But God, he's saying here, what he's saying is that God is so sovereign and so concerned with you make it to your destination of the heavenly Jerusalem, he won't allow you to stop short of your journey. That's what he's saying. He's not going to let you slip so that you stop short of your journey. Your journey's end. He will ensure that your steps are always positively going to him. Now that may feel like you go this way and then this way, switch back, and then, but you're always finally going that way. He will not allow your foot to slip. Again, do you believe that? You ought to be able to rest easy at some level knowing that he is vested, he is invested in your making it. He will not allow your foot to slip. Sometimes you think you're going backwards. Sometimes you feel like you're going in circles. But those who lift their eyes to the Lord take courage. He's ensuring every step is closer and closer to Him. He who keeps you will not slumber. The promise of sure footing is undergirded because our God does not sleep. He is constantly awake. And not awake is, is absolutely critical. Or being awake is absolutely critical. Think of that. Just this reality that at every moment, his entire gaze and attention, somehow and on all of his children, is fully fixed on your one foot not slipping. The language here is it's, it's really striking. He will not slumber. He will not sleep. It's what he's doing right now. He's guarding you. He's keeping you. He's protecting you. This will always be the case. He doesn't, he doesn't go to sleep. He's always aware. You know? You think of the, those uh, movies where you see the security guard at the gate of some compound or whatever and he's sacked out and the, and the thieves go by, you know, or something like that. That's not going to happen. It won't ever happen. The Lord doesn't sleep. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. He tells it again. He wants you to know. He's always watching. He has a particular focus here on you. In particular here, he spells out it's Israel that his focus is on. More than all the other peoples in the world, it's Israel. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Now we know under the Old Covenant, Israel, the physical ethnic Israel, were God's people. But now again under the New Covenant, as history shifts, it still is Israel. But no longer are we talking about physical Israel. We're talking about Israel after the promise. 
Israel after the Spirit, not restricted to ethnicity. In Romans 2, those who have the Spirit are called Jews inwardly because they have the Spirit. In Romans 9, we are called the Israel according to promise. Romans chapter 11, we are the Gentiles grafted into the redemptive historical tree of Israel and now are the Israel of God. Remember, there's only one tree in Romans 11, not an Israel tree and a Gentile tree. The Gentiles are grafted into Israel. We are the Israel of God. Galatians 6, we are flat out called the Israel of God. Hebrews chapter 8, we, are, we, we, we find ourselves recipients of this new covenant and this new covenant that's made, Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 31, is with Judah and Israel. And in Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews applies it to the people of God in general. And in Philippians chapter 3, we are the true circumcision. And on and on and on. God was the keeper of Israel. He's still the keeper of Israel because we are the Israel of God. We are the people of God. God is our keeper. Just remember that. He has a, a special focus on your preservation he says it again the lord is your keeper again lest you don't believe the psalmist (laughs) he is your keeper over and over and over he won't allow your foot to slip he who keeps you will not slumber behold he who keeps israel will neither slumber nor sleep the lord is your keeper he really wants you to know you're going to make it he really wants you to know that you are going to make it if if he is jehovah and he's got all power, you're going to make it. And he is. The Lord is your keeper. The personal Lord of the universe works to keep you. Think of Romans 8.28. How is that true? It's true because the Lord keeps you. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. As one takes a journey in the intense heat of the sun, shade becomes vital. Recently, I was watching a backpacking video where a guy was talking about essential gear items to take through the desert, and one of the items he had was, was this umbrella that had this reflective coating on it, whatever, whatever, probably like $500 for like this big. But what it showed me is that when you're hiking exposed areas, you need shade, right? Shade is what gives relief from the sun's heat. Shade is vital so that the hiker is not utterly drained, doesn't say that God causes a tree to you know, sprout while you're walking and then you get shade. It says the Lord is your shade. Think of that. The Lord is your shade. You can still be walking through the exposed area and all of a sudden there's relief. There's refreshment. Again, the Lord does this. The Lord does this for his people. He's the shade on your right hand, just as close as your own right hand. Sitting in the shade is so sweet on a hot day, isn't it? What a wonderful experience. This is the Lord for you. Do you know what it is to have the Lord's shade? Do you know what it is for the Lord to be your shade? He wants you to, relearn, he wants you to learn it. He wants you to learn that relief and comfort and refreshing comes from him. He wants you to, he wants you to learn that, to know that. The sun will not smite you by day nor the moon by night. The sun can have a devastating effect on those who are exposed to its rays. All manner of issues, right? Dehydration, sunburn, something called hell's itch. You ever heard of that? Sounds horrific. I think Slade gets it. Uh, Where you just can't stop itching because you've been burned. Sun poisoning. All these things that can just, just stifle your journey and cause you to lose heart. 
But he says that the sun will not smite you by day, nor the moon by night. The moon, perhaps referring to the time in the night and in the darkness where one can be disoriented and unclear on the way forward. So here you have a promise with the sun and the moon. It's not going to smite you. It's a promise that, that, that these things will not keep you from walking the narrow road to the Lord. If you look at the New Testament, the sun in the New Testament can refer to the trial and hardships of life. Think of the seed of the soils, or the, the, um, the parable of the soils. The seed sown beside the rocky soil was, was uh, withering away because the sun comes and causes it to wither away. And Jesus says those are the trials and the hardships of life. So again, it's just more and more, more and more promises that trials will not take you out. Trials will not cause you ultimately to diverge and not make it. You will make it. And if he couldn't say much more, he just said, the Lord will protect you from all evil. (laughs) I mean, just laboring to tell you the Lord will protect you from all evil. The Lord knows that there is evil in this world, inspired by an evil one who is out for your failure and apostasy. Satan himself has set himself on the destruction of God's people from the beginning, hasn't he? And the Lord has promised to be your protector from him. And, and it's clear we must exercise faith in the Lord to seek his strength, but there's this reality that God has promised to keep you from finally being destroyed by the evil one in these verses. He's, he's going to keep you. He's going to protect you from all evil. And this promise was prophesied in Genesis 3.15 and executed at the cross. God says, I'm going to have the seed of the woman crush the head of the serpent, the evil one. And Jesus brings that to pass. The writer of Hebrews says, Jesus partook of flesh and blood that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death. That is, the devil. Jesus has defeated our greatest foe. In the last few statements here, He will keep your soul. There's something more important than even just living for a long time. And that is a soul preserved by God for eternity. He will keep your soul. Only God can do that. The Lord will guard your going out and your coming in. This is the everyday protection of the Lord. Guarding your soul. The Lord does not miss a day. There is not one mundane moment where he drops his gaze. He will guard your going out and your coming in. When you stay at home, when you go out, when you come in, he guards you all the time. And he says, to put a fine point on it here at the end, he says, from this time forth and forever. He will never stop keeping you. He'll never stop doing it. He keeps you now and he keeps you forever. I'll just end with a quote from Derek Kidner here. I love this quote. It would, be hard to, it would be hard to decide, thinking of this verse of, from this time forth and forever, it would be hard to decide which half of this verse is more encouraging. The fact that it starts from now or that it runs on. Not to the end of time, but without end. Like God himself from this time forth and forever. See, the reality is, as we saw in 1 Peter, that Jesus Christ has brought you to God through his death. He's brought you to God. And that's why you're his. 
and he'll keep you now and forever for himself. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this wonderful psalm. I pray that it would encourage the hearts of the brethren here to rest in you and to know that you are our keeper. And Lord Jesus, we we thank you for the cross that, that ensures that we will be finally protected from the evil one. His accusations have no place in our life anymore. And we thank you for the reality that, Lord, you've prayed for us that we would be kept from the evil one. And that we know your Father will always answer. And so, Lord, just be with my brethren. Again, strengthen them. Remind them of these wonderful things when Satan's blaring at them that God doesn't care or doesn't see. Help them to remember that the Lord is our keeper. In Jesus' name, amen.